Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean uh, World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, this uh, this podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Yasmin Besteki from the Emirates Diplomatic Academy. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor J.E. Peterson on his book, The Emergence of uh, Gulf State Studies in Modern History. Dr. Peterson is affiliated with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Arizona and has been a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and the Middle East Institute in D.C. Until 1999, he served as the historian of the Sultan's Armed Forces in the office of the Deputy Prime Minister for Security and Defense in Muspet in the Sultanate of Amman and spent 2000 to 2001 at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. By discussing this book, we will be exploring an overview of the history of Saudi Arabia and the five Persian Gulf states, or the Arabian Gulf states, um, that emerged from British rule between 1961 and 1971, including Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates, discussing their history up until independence. So, um, we would first like to thank Dr. Peterson for coming on um, to discuss this book. And um, I guess, uh, Dr. Peterson, I'll turn the floor over to you and um, ask you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Um, you've mentioned a few things. I did my PhD uh, many years ago now from uh, Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, where I studied with, amongst others, uh, Majid Khadouri, one of the founding fathers of Middle East studies um, anywhere. Um, I taught at various universities in the United States, including Bowdoin, William and Mary Penn, um, and was also, as you said, connected with various think tanks in this country and the UK. And spent that time in Oman, which is uh, 
always been and always will be a great pleasure to have experienced uh, the people of Oman. And since then, I've come back to the United States, where I live in the state of Arizona, and continue to write on the region. Um, I've written books on Oman and Yemen and political participation, a book on defending Arabia, uh, another book on Oman's insurgencies, a historical gazetteer of Muscat in Oman. And also, um, after this edited book was published, I've done a a historical dictionary of Saudi Arabia, but also a book on the economic and financial foundations of the state in Saudi Arabia. And uh, presently, I am trying to complete a book on the emergence of the new state in Oman after the accession of Sultan Qaboos in 1970, basically covering the first 15 years of that new regime. Well, that's uh, quite an undertaking you're taking on. Uh, It keeps me busy. It does. Um, So I guess the question is, what uh, got you interested in your current field of study? Um, Actually, it's probably atypical from the point of view of many people in the West who are interested in the Middle East. I don't have any family connection. Uh, I didn't live in the area. It was more academically oriented. And I have to say again that uh, Majid Khadouri was probably one of the, the main reasons because in undergraduate courses I began reading on international relations and particularly Islamic civilization. And I thought there's a subject that I really ought to know more about. And I have continued ever since to try and educate myself and gain greater understanding. And I'm not sure that I've been entirely successful even yet. Well, it's an ongoing learning process. Yeah, very true. (laughs) Besides Khadouri, have you had any other influential mentors? Well, yes. Um, In a way, there were a number of leading figures in the study of this, of the Arabian Peninsula, that I've been privileged to know, at least in part, uh, from George Rents and Bailey Winder. I uh, worked also with John Duke Anthony um, shortly after he got his PhD ahead of me. and. I've also been very uh, fortunate, I suppose, to have got to know many of the people in the Gulf, um, many of whom have since passed the scene, people in senior government positions, people in universities, and people from a wide variety of walks of life that hopefully has uh, instilled a sense of understanding. I know, that's wonderful. Um, All right, um, so I guess let's move on to the book itself, Um, the piece de resistance, as we'd like to say, of the the podcast. So um, how did the idea for the book develop? I worked very closely with the Abtajer Trust in London, and its director, Richard Muir, a former British ambassador to, in 
various places in the Gulf. And the idea was to build a book detailing the modern history of the Gulf and particularly the what are now the six states of the Arab littoral of the Gulf. Um, in a way, the impetus was the to counteract the common idea that the Arab littoral in the Gulf were without history until oil or even independence, and that oil brought them back into the outside world and particularly into the world of the the into the orbit of the Arab world. Um, and as we approached that idea of how we were going to handle it, um, as I discussed with Richard Muir and with the Advisory Council of Atajir Institute, um, we decided to create um, four associate editors to help us uh, define what topics we should cover and who were best suited to cover the topics or the other way around, who were the best people to to include in this volume and what topics they would bring their strengths to bear. Um, so we got uh, four eminent scholars on the region to become our advisory editors. Uh, Bernard Heichel of Princeton, Frauke Hurt Bay in Abu Dhabi, Mohammed Al-Muqaddam of uh, the Sultan Qaboos University in Muscat, and James Piscatori, who was then at Durham and now is at Australian National University. And we had a meeting in which we threshed through who was available, who we wanted, and what kinds of things we wish to discuss. We wanted it to be as comprehensive as possible, um, but you can only go so far within the covers of a single book, of course. Once we had identified people, um, I contacted them and invited them to participate. We, I asked them to provide a short uh, synopsis of what they might approach. We discussed it, um, and then we asked them to to produce a longer synopsis. And we got together uh, for a weekend with all of the authors who accepted, and we each presented their synopsis and we discussed it, um, not to make everything uniform, but to create a cohesiveness to the whole in which we would be discussing the same kinds of uh, uh, we'll be discussing different topics but from uh, similar approaches um, and once we had sort of ironed things out everyone went away wrote their paper we came back again and each author's paper was critiqued by the the whole and then they produce their final drafts. And part of the idea, a major part of the idea, was I didn't want this, these are not conference papers that may or may not have a, a common element. They are not um, sort of state of the art essays of where we are at. They are not. Um, chronological narratives, even though the idea was to 
to bring depth to the entire period of the modern history of the Gulf states at its beginning of the 17th or 18th centuries up to approximately 1971, but to synthesize all of the work that has been done on each topic and to bring that background of scholarship into an examination of how each individual topic has evolved um, in terms of scholarship. Um, So our end result here is 11 chapters by people who are thoroughly eminent in their field. Um, We begin with a chapter by... uh, the archaeologist Daniel Pipes, Daniel Potts, on trends and patterns in the archaeology and pre-modern history of the Gulf region to set the context to show that historical continuity over millennia. Next, there is a uh, chapter by Michael Crawford on religion in the Gulf, and he does a superb job of of synthesizing the different trends and developments within individual religious sects and movements, and also draws a contrast between the religion of the elites and what we might call a folk religion as observed by the population at large. Although the emphasis is on the Gulf states, that is the six states now comprising the Gulf Cooperation Council, we didn't want to give the impression that they are divorced from their other two neighbors in the Gulf. So we have a chapter on intra-Gulf relations, which has two parts. Um, Halafatah, um, describes the impact that Iraq and the interrelationship of the Gulf states and Iraq through the centuries. And a companion part of that chapter is by Lawrence Potter, writing on the impact and the interrelationship between the Arab littoral and Iran. I have a chapter on the age of imperialism and its impact on the Gulf, um, tracing how the different European empires entered, not just the Gulf, but the Indian Ocean, and what uh, their rivalries and how that eventually boiled down to the role of the British Empire in India, which had, of course, a very significant impact on the Gulf until, uh, until Indian independence. Uh, there's a chapter by Fahad Ahmed Bashara and Patricia Risso um, on the relationship of the Gulf to, on the one hand, the Arab world, and even more significantly to the Indian Ocean. I managed to get a number of our authors to work together to provide a chapter on the economic transformation in the Gulf. Fahad Ahmed Bishara, Bernard Haeckel, Stefan Hertog, Clive Holes, and James Onley. And I think this is a very... 
most writing on economics that's concerned with the Gulf has been um, sort of macroeconomics, uh, national accounts, and of course, oil. And the idea was how economic change has completely transferred the way people work in the Gulf, the standards and styles of living and so forth. Um, we have an eminent anthropologist, <coughs> Dale Eichelman, who writes on the tribes and tribal identity. Um, Hala Fatah also contributed a chapter on social structures and transformation. Clive Holes, a linguist at Oxford, has a chapter titled Language, Culture, and Identity, which are topics that really are not very frequently discussed in terms of Gulf history. Uh, Frauke Heard Bay then contributed a chapter on the origins of the states, how states began and coalesced around ruling families. And he end up with a, a chapter on nation building, um, particularly in the uh, middle of the 20th century. This is by Stefan Hertog of LSE. You know, um, I guess a question I would love to ask is, um, you know, after taking on such a huge undertaking of synthesizing so many uh, different topics, um, you know, in the Gulf itself, which in itself, each, you know, state has its own, um, you know, long history. I guess the question that I would like to pose is after sort of completing it, what did you feel or what did you feel as, um, you know, the, uh, the editors and the authors writing this was missing from the, from the work itself after it uh, was published? Well, as I said before, we wanted to be as comprehensive as possible, but we only had one book to work with and 11 chapters. It's uh, close to 400 pages as it is. And I wanted to make sure that each author had sufficient space to tell the story that they felt needed to be told. And so I was not so concerned with making sure that they only do 10,000 words as a maximum. So the chapters, some of the chapters kind of grew. But we recognized from the beginning that there were a number of topics that are very salient and important, but that we could not cover individually because we only had so much room. For example, um, the history of slavery in the region has been getting a lot of uh, attention uh, finally in scholars, younger scholars working on the Gulf. We don't address that uh, specifically in a chapter, but um, individual authors in their chapters do mention and treat that. Um, the, the role of women is another uh, aspect that we didn't cover explicitly. Um, if we had another volume to do, then we could include all the as many more topics as as we have in this one. Yeah, well, maybe that should be your next project. I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
think about it. You'll take that <laughs> suggestion in stride. Yeah. Okay. Um, so many, so many projects, right, so, so little time. So little yeah. time, yeah. Um, how does it compare or depart from any other works you've worked on? Well, uh, as an edited book, I've edited several other uh, books before. Um, and they've tended to be more uh, in the realm of collection of conference papers. And, of course, I've participated in many conferences and written chapters for books that have uh, come out of those conferences. And this was not conference papers. It was meant to be more cohesive, more integrated in that one chapter should inform the other chapters and the build one on the other. So it's, again, it's far more comprehensive and integrated than other edited works um, have been. Do you feel it's harder to work on edited works or do you prefer it? It is, well, it's a mixed bag. In some respects, it is more difficult because you're dealing with a lot of different people. Um, some people write quicker than others, for example. I had uh, one or two cases of authors having virtually to beg authors to get their pieces done on time. Um, some authors had personal problems which impacted their ability to to write um, to spec on time uh, and to devote their full attention to it. So there's those kinds of shortcomings. On the other hand, uh, I had my own chapter, of course, to write, and that took a considerable amount of time, um, in time in reading and research as well as the actual writing. And I'm glad that I didn't have to do it for all 11 topics. <laughs> I, I would still be writing. Um, but another positive of doing an edited book, particularly one of this nature, is that I had to get into the topic as deeply as the author and able to, in order to make sure that that theme of the book was being carried through and that the chapters were written well. Um, and consequently, I learned an enormous amount, and I will always be grateful for that aspect of it. Of course. Um, how did you deal with, I guess, the differing opinions of the authors um, when creating an edited uh, piece like this? Because I'm sure... Um, Part of it is obviously consolidating different works and giving, um, you know, different voices, bringing in different opinions. But sort of how, I guess, how was the process of smoothing over maybe disagreements of, you know, what should be in there and what shouldn't? And, um, yeah. Um, I think I can answer that in two parts. One is that... My intention, my goal, as I expressed to the various authors, was that I wasn't writing these chapters. They're not my strengths, for the most part. 
and we invited people who were experts, who were authorities, and they should write what they believed in and what they believed was correct. So it wasn't a matter of agreement or disagreement. They had carte blanche to write what they felt was important. I may have, I would edit it for style, I would edit for length, I would edit for various reasons, but I made sure it was their voice, not mine. Um, why else would we do a book with all of these uh, well-known authors if I tried to interfere with it? That would have been counterproductive. Secondly, I uh, had a slightly different approach to let's say, scholarly writing, I actively discouraged footnotes. And the reason I did this was because I wanted each of the authors to discuss not only their work and what they brought to the table, but to also bring in the ideas and concepts of others who have written in that field and who had contributed to the specific topic. So I wanted them to mention other authors when appropriate, and everyone did. And I discouraged footnotes because I didn't want someone to write, for example, that so-and-so said this on page 81 of one of their books, because each scholar over the course of decades has created a an outlook a body of knowledge and understanding and i wanted that particular context to represent the authors of other works that are represented in specific topics and if sorry if i may add one more point here that perhaps i should have said before um, each chapter, in fact, is two parts. The, the first and major part is the text, the, the, the creation of a narrative on what that topic means for the goal for the last several centuries. But appended to each, uh, to all but one chapter, is a bibliographic essay and bibliography that not only gives a reader the particulars of an author who is mentioned within the text, but also a very brief discussion of what, if you want to know about that text, if you want to know about tribes, if you want to know about the impact between the Gulf and the Indian Ocean, who do you go to? What works do you consult? And so that path is, is open to the reader in these bibliographic essays and bibliographies appended to each chapter, except for one. And that was Michael Crawford's chapter on religion and religious movements in the Gulf. And the reason that that is different is because he cited an enormous number of works in Arabic and manuscripts and sources that are probably unknown to almost everyone. And we felt that those footnotes that he put in his chapter was, were so valuable that they should be preserved as footnotes. 
I guess the next question would be, who do you hope will read the book and what impact did you want it to have? Um, well, <laughs> various audiences. Um, on, starting at one end, I, I would hope that this would be read by graduate students um, as their introduction to the history of the Gulf that it would also appeal to uh, scholars either on the Middle East or Asia or adjacent uh, regions of the world um, as a, again, as a basic introduction to the various topics, as well as people who worked on, uh, let's say, anthropology, that there would be several chapters in this book of interest to them, no matter what area of the world that they specialized in. Um, I would also think that Gulf scholars, established Gulf scholars would be in, very interested in it. And hopefully other people who might be interested in the Gulf just in general would find that dipping through the pages, it, it's not written in academic jargon. It's written in strong, common-sense English, and I think that it is accessible to a very wide audience. Yeah. I think that's always important because um, sometimes a lot is lost in the academic jargon. And, um, you know, having it accessible kind of, I guess, uh, opens doors. I think so. Also, also the other thing that um, I insisted upon for the most part, was I wanted established scholars, people who had been working on their topics for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And the reason that I wanted that is because once you start out, you do a, a dissertation or thesis, you have it published, you do articles, but then you move on and you expand your horizons and you begin to put larger pieces together. And after a career of doing so, you develop an insight that requires all of that exposure over a long period of time. That's not to denigrate the work of younger scholars because when I started out working in the Gulf, it was very, access was very difficult. That is physical access to the countries was difficult. Access to the people that you wanted to talk to was difficult. And there were very many subjects that were off limits that you could not deal with, you could not touch, but also there was no structural way in which to examine many of these topics. And this is one of the real benefits of younger scholars throughout the region, throughout the West, is that they've been able to tackle uh, topics that could not have been done perhaps 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. So there's a, there's a balance, and I, there's a couple of younger people that I included in the book because they had contributions that needed to be made. What do you think was the greatest lesson for you after writing this book, or after you know writing it with the authors? Um, well, no, that's a hard question to answer. 
Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a broad question. Um, but uh, yeah, just in general, do you th- did you feel like it changed a perception for you? Well, yes. As I said before, um, working with all of these people, I mean, I, I've been working on the Gulf for well over 40 years. And I think I've learned a lot over that period of time. But I also know, and this book reinforced it, there is so much more that I have only a glimpse of or never really grasped before. And therefore, as I said earlier, it was educational for me. It expanded my horizons. It helped me answer questions by filling in blanks, as it were. Right. And it's a changing field, as you said, because things that were off limits before are now accessible, you know, such as topics of uh, slavery and um, I guess the different uh, languages and uh, histories, um, that it's more heterogeneous than homogeneous as, um, you know, is propagated. Well, definitely. And... Uh, yes, you're right. No one would have talked of, of slavery before um, and its impacts from a historical point of view. Um, Gulf history in the earlier years of scholarly examination focused largely on country studies and the role of the building of states through the ruling families. Um, and in a very general sense, population movements over the last few centuries that have created the present national populations. Uh, And that emphasis on country studies was necessary at that point in time because it hadn't been done. Things had not been, say, cataloged. Once those works had been published and absorbed and, and put into the curriculum, then younger scholars could build off of them in more particular topics, partly because there was more archival material, partly because um, local uh, archives, manuscripts, and so forth um, were able to be utilized, and partly because there's more recognition of the value of scholarly work in the Gulf than was decades ago. So before we on to our last traditional question, could you please read us a paragraph from the book? Yes, I'd be delighted. Actually, um, <laughs> it was this was a difficult choice to make because there's so many um, excellent paragraphs that I could have chosen. And also because I have 11 different topics, then I have to prioritize Uh, in this case, two over all the rest. But I've chosen two passages which I intend to illustrate the depth and complexity of Gulf history and its heritage, one that extends far back beyond modern history and and connections of the Gulf to far, illustrates the connection of the Gulf to far-flung societies across the Indian Ocean. So the first passage is from the chapter on the Gulf, the Indian Ocean, and the Arab world that was written by Fahad Ahmed Bashara and Patricia Rissell. 
When we consider the Gulf to belong, whether to the Middle East or Indian Ocean, must be historically contingent. If today we consider the Gulf states, including Iraq, Iran, and the Arab littoral states, to operate almost fully within the sphere of what we know as the Middle East, itself a Cold War construct, that cannot be the case for the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, as for most of its history, the Gulf enjoyed deep and meaningful connections to the Indian subcontinent and the East African coast, ties that looked across the sea rather than across the desert. Indeed, this is no distant foreign past. It is a history that retains some meaning today, a history that echoes through the trans-regional flows of finance and labor that characterize the Gulf to this day. For the historian, then, there is nothing surprising about finding communities of Indians throughout the Gulf and East African businessmen in Dubai, nor even the boats from coastal Gujarat that line the creeks of Dubai and Sharjah, for these are not relics of some past, but enduring state testaments to the fact that despite all of the late 20th century transformations, the Gulf continues to hold a place as a regional crossroads of culture, capital, and history. To illustrate this, my point of, of different, um, of, uh, of the long history and complexity of Gulf society, um, I've also chosen a passage from the chapter by Clive Holes on language, cultural, and identity. And this one I kind of introduce to you uh, for fun, as it were. Place names in the region show the influence of the languages and cultures which held sway in the Gulf in the past. For example, in Bahrain, Mahouz, now a suburb of Manama, but once a separate village, is a corruption of the Aramaic Mahoza or Akkadian Mahazu, which means town. The village of Buri may owe its name to Akkadian Buru, cistern, well, pool. These toponyms may be vestigial linguistic evidence of an ancient connection with southern Iraq. Bahraini village names such as Kurbabad, Samabad, Shahrakhan, Khan, and Jardab are all of Persian origin, but again are not recent. In Oman, Rostok is an early example of Arabized Persian, meaning marketplace. The present-day toponym Arad in Bahrain is recorded by Strabo, 1st century CE, and Ptolemy, 2nd century CE, in the Greek form Eridos, and then referred to the whole island known today as Maharak, not just the present-day eponymous village. Four centuries later, what is another village on Maharak Island, Samahij, was known by the Sasanian Persian name Mashmahij, and again at that point referred to the whole island. It was the seat of an Nestorian Christian bishop. Nearby Der, from the Syriac, from the Syriac Der, cloister or monastery, and still known as late as the end of the 19th century as Der Rahib, the monk's cloister, attests to the ancient Christian presence in the Gulf. There are also unquestionable traces of Akkadian Aramaic elements in some Gulf Arabic dialects, 
particularly in the realm of farming and material culture, which, like some of the place names, link the Gulf culturally, linguistically, and perhaps ethnically with ancient Babylonia. And actually, Clive goes on to discuss many of these dialects, which I would love to read you, but I don't think we have the time. So read the book. Unfortunately, we don't. But uh, yeah, that, that's a really interesting fact, um, which I wasn't aware of. So yeah, um, really interesting. Um, well, you know, I could talk to you all day, but we've taken up a lot of your time. I guess the the next question would be, what are you working on now? Um, current, what are some current future projects? Maybe a part two to this book. Well, you've given me food for thought, <laughs> and uh, it would be a, a, a very interesting thing to do uh, to cover some of the other topics that uh, we mentioned earlier that we haven't covered in detail in this book. And it may be very interesting as well to bring our, our, our focus was roughly up to 1971 or into early 80s in some cases and that period of 40 years 40 50 years has a lot of history in it too so uh, taking a later chronological focus might be a good idea well thank you for uh, speaking to us today and to our guests thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored the emergence of gulf states Studies in Modern History. This is your host, Yasmin Bestaki. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.